I am um, grateful for the opportunity to preach today. Uh, I, my retirement has become official two weeks ago, and so the opportunity to be with you all is a great and wonderful honor. I am sitting today, uh, surgery on my ankle and cortisone and gel shots in my arthritic knee have uh, forced me to a chair, so I've adapted and adopted the, the rabbinical mode of teaching. When they taught, they sat down, so I'm the real preacher uh, in this. <laughs> I, want to, um, I want to invite some friends up, uh, Daisy and Michelle, Zaragoza and Ben, they're going to do a reading of my text, which is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's a reading that I adapted out of the voice. It's kind of a creative reading. Please listen and respond. This is the story of one of the most unusual events in Jesus' public ministry. You can hear it in the voices of Jesus, Mary, and the hat waiter. When I brought my disciples with me to the wedding, I never expected to begin my public ministry. When my eldest son arrived, all I was hoping was that he could help an embarrassing situation at a wedding. I didn't know it would produce a miracle. As a head waiter at the wedding, I never knew a miracle was created. I just thought it was an unusual way to organize a wedding celebration. Hear, Hear the word, the word of, the of the Lord. Three days. That number could be important. <laughs> Three days after calling the disciples, they all went to celebrate a wedding feast in Canaan of Galilee. I was invited together with Jesus and his disciples. While they were celebrating, the wine ran out, and Jesus' mother hurried over to her son. The host stands on the brink of embarrassment. There are many guests, and there is no more wine. My dear woman, is it our problem that they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? <laughs> my time has not arrived. Do whatever my son tells you. In that area were six massive stone water pots that could each hold 20 to 30 gallons. They were typically used for Jewish purification rites. My instructions to the servants were clear and direct. Fill each water pot with water until it's ready to spill over the top. Then fill a cup and deliver it to the head waiter. They did exactly as they were instructed. After testing the water that had become wine, the head waiter couldn't figure out where such wine came from. So he caught over the bridegroom in amazement. This wine is delectable, but why would you save the most exquisite fruit of the vine till the end? A host would generally serve the good wine first, and when his inebriated guests don't notice or care, he would serve the inferior wine. Yet you have held back the best for last. Jesus performed this miracle, the first of his signs, in Canaan of Galilee, and his disciples believed on him. It wasn't the beginning that I intended, but it was nevertheless the beginning of my public ministry. I didn't intend it to be a showcase for my son's power, 
but it was a powerful miracle that announced his presence. It was such an unusual experience. I still wonder what it all means. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. To God. Well, to be honest, that's a little underwhelming, isn't it? I mean, seriously. If you're about to begin, about to launch the most influential, the most dynamic, the most powerful, the most earth-shaking three-year period of time in the history of humankind, wouldn't you find a more impressive way to start than, I don't know, this? Wouldn't you find a better opening salvo than, you know, look, nothing up my sleeve, presto changeo, ta-da, wine. Shouldn't it have been something, I don't know, a little more powerful? Okay, I know. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if it's that easy, Doc, you do it. All right, I get it. I get it. I get it. You got me there. But then you have to also give me the fact that Jesus did a lot more impressive things that could have provided a far more impressive opening than just changing water into wine. How about um, somebody who was blind? Heal them, let them see. That'd have been a good one. Maybe somebody that was lame and couldn't walk, deaf and couldn't hear, couldn't speak, and suddenly they were made whole. That would have been impressive, wouldn't it? That had started it off really good. How about driving out a demon? Wow, that would be impressive. That'd be something to take notice. Why don't you calm the seas? How about walking on the water? Feed 5,000 people. Let that be the start. I got it. Why don't you raise somebody from the dead? Now you got my attention. Certainly there were a lot more powerful things that Jesus did during his public ministry that would have provided a more dynamic and powerful opening. That's impressive. Pick one of those. Do that one. But turning water into wine, yeah. Seems rather pedestrian, doesn't it? A little too small, maybe? Mundane? Pedantic? Insignificant? For the Son of God? What are we doing here? Shouldn't, why is this story here? Why does this story lead off, open up, introduce the powerful ministry of Jesus Christ? It doesn't have that kind of, I don't know, ring to it. Shouldn't it have more oomph? I, I kept thinking of the movie Bull Durham and Luke Lelouch, the, the kind of head guy that's the pitcher and that's got all the talent and no head. And he's having a conference on the mound with Crash Davis, the grizzled old veteran catcher. And Crash Davis wants him to throw a particular pitch. And, and Lelouch doesn't want to throw the pitch. I want to throw the fastball. I want to throw the heater. I want to announce my presence with authority. Isn't that what we think? Isn't that what Jesus should have done? 
He should have announced his presence with authority. He should have made a big splash. He should have go big or go home. Isn't that what we say? Why in the world would Jesus do this? It's too small. It's too average. And it's too under the, way, under the radar. Hardly anybody knows it even happens. I mean, his disciples catch a glimpse of it. A couple of the servants probably figure it out. Nobody else seems to know. The bride doesn't know. The groom doesn't know. The parents don't know. The people at the wedding don't know. The head waiter doesn't know. The, the guy tasting the wine, he doesn't understand what's going on. The people of Cana are going up and down, walking to and fro. They don't know. Why this story? It's so under the radar. It isn't right. Not that God asked me. But shouldn't Jesus' first miracle be something powerful? Shouldn't it be something public? Shouldn't it be something persuasive? Shouldn't his first miracle that introduces him as the powerful son of God be something more than doing what his mommy told him to do? Why this story? I'm befuddled. I remain befuddled. I just can't quite figure out why this story, why this miracle, why this moment to begin his public ministry when he clearly states in the dialogue with his mother, it's not my time yet. And if it's not his time, why is he doing it? And if he's doing anything, why in the world is he doing this? There are other problems with this passage. Oh, I got a bunch of them. Hang in here with me. Why is your first miracle involve alcohol? I'm not trying to make us all teetotalers, but folks, we're in ministry. If you've been in ministry for any period of time, you've seen the effects of alcohol. The lives that have been destroyed, the families that have been destroyed, the marriages that have been destroyed. I'm not even counting the murders, the rapes, the fights, the unwanted pregnancies, the things that have happened all due to the fact that people drank too much alcohol. Why in the world, if you're going to start your public ministry and announce who you are, would you want to start with something like that? I had a professor, Greek professor in college, this is back in the 1800s. I had this Greek professor, and Dr. Shute was, we were dealing with this passage in our Greek class. And Dr. Shute took almost the whole time not to teach us Greek but to argue with this text. He said he could not imagine that God would allow such a story into his word if it were an actual story, and he could not figure out why Jesus would do something like this. So beyond anything else that he did and all of his theology and awareness of the Bible, he said it's got to be a parable, it can't be a true story. He could not wrap his mind around the fact that Jesus would produce a miracle that produced alcohol. Now, I get it, I know. Alcohol's different, I understand. But folks, it's there. And it's being read today. I got another problem. 
good place for a seminary to talk about this. It's John's gospel versus the synoptics. Certainly uh, not to take the place of Dr. Bauer and Dr. Reese and others who do a wonderful job, a marvelous job of teaching the word here, teaching Bible, but you do realize there are differences between the gospel of John and the synoptics. And the, one of the main issues between the two is that Luke says he, he wants to write an orderly account. He's as close to a biographer as we get in the gospel writers. John, <laughs> he could care less about timelines. Chronolo his chronology is all over the map. He, he breaks every rule that there seemingly is about writing a history of somebody. Matter of fact, if you haven't noticed, the passage that immediately follows this in John is a passage of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry walking into the temple and upsetting the, the tables. Every other gospel has it at the last week of his life. But John seemingly doesn't care about chronologies, doesn't care about timelines. He just puts things where he wants them. And he doesn't do it because he just doesn't care about history. He does it because he has a particular thing that he's doing. In the end of his gospel, in John chapter 20, um, and, and in verses 30 and 31, it says, Jesus did many other miracle signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, listen to this, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His purpose is not to write you a history. His purpose is to give you the story of Jesus in such a way that you might be persuaded to believe. He's John the evangelist, right? That's his function. That's his purpose. You catch the problem with this? If he doesn't care about historical chronology, then John, when he sat down to write the gospel, looked at all those stories, looked at all of them, and said, you know, of all the miracles, of all the teachings, of all the stories that Jesus told, of all the things that he did, this would be the best one to start off with. Are you kidding me? This? And it wasn't like he had a paucity of material. He said, you know, I only got so much. In the 21st chapter, the end, of the, the end of his gospel, he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Good grief. He's got all this material. And he says, eh. <laughs> So the question remains. Why this story? What is it about this story that puts it at the front? And scholars, I love scholars, I is one. Uh, I, scholars, they love to do, they love to do these mental, biblical, theological gymnastics to try and explain things. And so one of the scholars that I read said that the reason that this was the way it was was that at the beginning of his gospel, John was trying to, to connect Jesus to Moses. And so the first miracle of Moses is turning the Nile to blood, 
the first miracle of Jesus is turning water into wine. Really? That's what you think this parallel is? Moses comes and provides a plague. Jesus comes and helps a wedding. That's your parallel? That's, that's the same kind of thing? One is public. The other is a private reception. One is political with all kinds of implications with Pharaoh. The other is a family celebration. One is the clash of cultures and the clash of different gods. And the other is the union of a family. I just don't see the resemblance. Okay, blood, wine, I'm lost. So another school of thought to try and help is to say this is John's way of highlighting the importance of communion. So communion is drinking at a wedding feast. I'm still a little lost here. And I'm also lost by the fact that in the Gospel of John, (laughs) uh, communion never occurs. You knew that, right? In the Synoptics, Last Supper, Jesus does communion. Not in John. John never has Jesus doing communion in the upper room. So at the end of the service today, we're going to follow the Gospel of John. Jessica is going to come up and lead us all in foot washing. You think I'm kidding. All right, I am kidding. But if we had just the Gospel of John, that's what we'd be doing. John does not have Jesus instituting communion. But scholars have said, yeah, well, the turning of water into wine, that's the cup. And then when Jesus says in John 6 that I am the bread, that's his body. So there we have communion. No, we don't. No, we don't. You can't do mental gymnastics to try and get an answer to a complicated problem that is a real thing that you've got to figure out what is God really doing here. Surely there's a more obvious reason. Surely there's a more direct reason. And certainly there is. This story shows the one unmistakable trait about Jesus the gospel, and his ministry. Because in this story, what's front and center is that Jesus changes things. That would have been a good place for my amen corner. You guys stink. (laughs) Jesus transforms everything and everyone that he comes in contact with. We're we're working on it. We're working on it. Transformation. Transformation is at the heart of the gospel. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to tell other people who Jesus is, if you want to get up here and preach the gospel, there better be an element of transformation in the ministry, in the mission, in the gospel that you preach, because everything that Jesus comes in contact with, he transforms into something else. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of Jesus. That's who he is. If Jesus meets a sinner, he turns them into a saint. If Jesus meets a tax collector, he sees a disciple. 
if he has the chief persecutor in front of him out trying to murder the church, what Jesus sees is the chief defender of the faith. He takes fishermen and says, we're not, teach we're not catching fish, we're catching people with the gospel of Christ. He takes the cross, an instrument of guilt, an instrument of criminal uh, activity, and he makes it into a symbol of grace. Everything Jesus touches, he transforms. He goes into a tomb, a tomb that is the end of life, where life stops and nothing else happens. And he turns it into an empty tomb where life begins and resurrection occurs. The end, in Jesus, the end is transformed to the beginning. Our sufferings are transformed into joy. And yes, guess what? Water is transformed into wine. Everything Jesus touches changes. It's transformed. Every time somebody touches Jesus, they're transformed. Lady reaches out and the crowd touches the hem of his garment and the flow of blood that has been plaguing her for decades stops. Thomas can't believe that Jesus has been resurrected. And when Jesus appears, he says, hey, Thomas, touch my hand. Touch my side. Thomas is transformed. A blind man with mud on his eyes, stuck there by Jesus' spit and dirt in the ground, washes. Suddenly, he can see. If you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand that the heart of the gospel, the center of who he is and what he does, is that he transforms. And if you think this is just an obvious message, then you're not listening to what's happening in the church today. We've got a church today that has set aside the idea of transformation. Come on, let's go. We, they have set aside the idea of transformation, and now... What's more important than the fact that Jesus transforms you is that I accept you where you are. Folks, God never accepts us where we are. Let's have a thank God for that. If he had accepted me where I was, I'd still be in my sin. I'd still be as stupid as stupid can be. Jesus touched me. And I am no longer the same. Can I get a witness here? Anybody here been transformed by the power of God? Yeah. Folks, <coughs> the gospel message is clear. If you're going to believe in Jesus, if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, if you're going to worship like we worship today and feel the sense of the presence of the Spirit of God in our midst, then the thing that must happen is that we must be transformed, changed into his likeness. <coughs> There's more. This miracle 
is done so intentionally by Jesus. Not, not haphazard, not something his mom forces on him. It's done so intentionally that Jesus gives instructions to the servants to go over to these stone water jars. Remember this part of the story? The stone water jars are filled with water. This is not a place where you go to tap and get a drink of water. This is water to be used to wash your hands, feet, whatever it may be, so that you, not, this is not some kind of germ thing. They don't understand about germs. This is about a ceremonial washing so that you can become clean. In other words, the water that's in these pots is designed ceremonially, ritually, to make you clean on the outside. Jesus instructs the servants to go over and get a ladle full of this, of this water. That, that, I go on with that. A ladle full of water. They weren't going to drink it. And then they're instructed to take it to the chief steward. What's he going to do with a ladle full of ceremonial water? When he gives it to the chief steward, he does not take the ladle and wash his hands with it. He doesn't know that it's ceremonial water, supposed to make him clean on the outside. He is assuming, and he's correct, that it is wine. So he doesn't wash himself with it. What does he do? He drinks it. He ingests the wine. No, 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 you didn't get that one, did you? No, 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 I, I lost you there, didn't I? The water is supposed to be used to make you clean on the outside. Jesus transforms it into wine that then is not used on the outside, but is ingested on the inside. You want to know how Jesus transforms people? He tells you here. I'm not going to transform your outsides. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. That's the difference in the transformation that Jesus gives. That's the difference in the transformation miracle and ministry that Jesus does for these three years and continuing on till today. What do you think salvation is? Salvation is not changing your outsides. If salvation was changing your outsides, God did a pretty lousy job with some of you. <laughs> well, you know. I know he didn't have much to work with. I get it. I understand. <laughs> Jesus changes you from the inside. He changes your heart. He changes your attitudes. He changes your virtues, your beliefs, your hopes, your dreams. You ingest Jesus. Aren't you glad we're holiness people? We got this down. We don't think salvation comes because Jesus comes and dumps on us. We believe that the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and sanctifies us and transforms us from the inside out. This is who Jesus is. This is the ministry that he does. And this is why we're holiness people. Because we understand that you don't acquiesce to the idea of Jesus. No, no, no. You ingest him. You bring him in. You offer yourself to him, and he comes and fills you.
and changes you from the inside out. Paul Morphy, during his lifetime, became the greatest chess champion in the world. And one day he went to an art gallery because he had heard that an artist by the name of um, Moritz Retchen had painted a particular painting and had entitled it Checkmate. So Morphy went to the gallery and he found the painting and he stood there because the subject of the painting was that the devil and the young man were playing a game of chess. And the devil had the young man in checkmate. Morphy stood there and stared. He stared for 10, 15 minutes. When finally he yelled, that's it, that's it, make that move. Make that move. Morphy had discovered a move that the artist had not considered. And if the young man would make that move, not only would he get out of checkmate, but if he followed it up in the proper way, Morphy said he would put the devil in check. You want to know what the gospel is? It's Jesus changing water into wine. It's transforming you from the inside out. Make that move. Open yourself up to that reality. And you will know the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Why this story? Because it's the perfect story to introduce who Jesus is and what he can do in you and in me. Make that move. Let him transform you. We're going to take communion. I'm pretty sure Jessica at some point will tell you that this is an open table. I think she's already done that. It is an open table. I love Wesley's theology of the table. Because it says that anybody can come, even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you haven't been transformed, you can come because there is this belief, heartfelt among those of us who are Wesleyans, that Jesus can transform your life from your pew to this table. That's the transforming power of God. If he can change water into wine, he can change your heart. If only you'll let him, even in the coming. Even. Pray with me. Oh Lord, you have blessed us, you have transformed us, and you await the opportunity to sanctify us wholly and completely. Let us, oh Lord, be faithful and obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.